Ladies and gentlemen, we are back with another Sideline Sportscast. We are up to episode number five. As always, I am here with my co-host, Brian. Brian, how you doing? Doing good, Logan. How are you? I'm doing well. Um, I need to, to share a little story with you since our, our last episode. Um, you know, last episode, we started uh, one of our topics with uh, Ovechkin and Gretzky and and uh, you know, one of my my best friends and, and our old co-host Mike is a big uh, Washington Capitals fan. Um, so I now receive daily text updates as to Ovechkin's status, and every time he scores a goal, I get a um, another one meme. You know, I get a, a Rick Ross. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm getting um, quite a few Rick Rosses these days in my in my texts. So. Uh, we'll see how long Mike keeps that up, but uh, he likes to uh, to point it out whenever. Uh, so are you uh, changing your position? No, no, no. I, you know, it's, <laughs> gonna, it's gonna make me double down the other way. You know, just to, uh-huh. to fight back. Uh-huh. So, but uh, but we got a, a six pack of topics this week. Uh, we're gonna do some early rookie of the year talk. We're gonna talk about the trade deadline, uh, an owner buyout. We're gonna talk about even more football games. And we've got a new second we're going to be calling On the Clock. But before we get into those, let's start out like we always do with what are we drinking. And tonight we have, uh, it's called Cloudy Donkey. So it's by Tampa Bay Brewing Company, which is uh, not too far from us. In some place uh, that we like to go, especially when we're going to Lightning Games. We usually stop for dinner there. For but sure. um, they have one of my favorite um, IPAs called Reef Donkey. And this is, I guess, a play on, on that Um uh, I've seen a, a trend lately where um, you know IPAs were all the rage, and now I'm seeing a lot of cloudy IPAs or hazy PAs, or you know they've got different names. So this is, I guess, their take on that. It's a hazy pale ale, a new New England style hazy pale ale. So let's go ahead and crack this open and uh, find out if it compares to Reef Donkey. Uh, this tastes very similar, you know, it, it, there's not a, yeah, that's what I was going to say. There's not a big, um, you know, flavor kind of profile change from, from this. If you were to put these in separate cans, uh, unmarked, I don't know that I would be able to tell you. Uh, I do know it's got a more of a cloudy, hazy, uh, appearance to it, but I mean, the flavor profile is, is pretty similar. So I'm, I'm a fan of this. Um, yeah, definitely hoppy off the the get go. But uh, I was just gonna say, if anybody's ever had re- um, reef donkey, um, and I think really, I'm just looking it up for our benefit. It looks like it is almost the same recipe as the reef donkey. But what they've done is done is use a double dry hopped recipe, which I guess is what's required for this new hazy fad that you were kind of talking about. Um, so it's interesting that it, it tastes. I wouldn't say identical, but if you put two of them next to each other, I probably wouldn't be able to tell uh, tell you which one's which. Yeah, it, it's very similar. Um, which I mean, in one aspect, I really like um, I, Reef Donkeys. You know, one of my probably top five favorite beers. But I kind of wanted something different. If I want Reef Donkey, I can go drink Reef Donkey. So uh, it's good, but um, I, I was just I was hoping for something just a little more distinct. Well, the good news is you can drive down and tell them. Yeah, we can. Uh, you know, <laughs> Tampa's now open, so maybe we'll have to catch a game and, and go tell them, tell them my thoughts on their beer. 
but uh so well, with that being said let, yeah so let's, let's uh, uh <laughs> let's let's remind everybody check us out on our social pages uh facebook twitter at sportsline casters uh but with that said let's go into our first topic we're going to start with the nba Last week, the Charlotte Hornets were in the middle of a five-game West Coast road trip, and if losing the first three games wasn't bad enough, Charlotte ended up losing point guard and rookie of the year front runner LaMelo Ball. Ball is expected to miss the rest of the season with a fracture to his right wrist, which resulted from him trying to break his fall after putting a layup through traffic. LaMelo was a, a mist of one of the you know great rookie seasons of recent history, uh, putting him in rarefied air with the likes of 2019 Rookie Year, two-time All-Star, and uh, 2020 NBA first-team player Luka Doncic, who is one of your boys. Uh, you know, it seemed like Bell, uh, Ball was a, a lock for Rookie of the Year this year. Um, you know, with his injury, uh, there's been a shift in Vegas's Rookie of the Year odds, and Ball has now relinquished that title as frontrunner to Minnesota Timberwolves wing Anthony Edwards. Uh, Brian, given Ball's success and the impact on his teams through the first 41 games, which is exactly half a normal NBA season, does Ball have a chance to still win Rookie of the Year? I think he certainly has a chance, and I think that just goes to you know the um, you know impact that the first 41 games that he did play and had on on the vote. Um, he certainly was the clear cut favorite going in. Um, to the all-star break uh, he was playing great I mean we've talked about him before on the podcast about his ceiling and where, where he could end up you know in terms of career um, aspirations but you know you hate to see anybody go down like this and you know miss the rest of the season especially in their rookie year but I think because we've already um, we're, we're already starting about other names there's already a front runner in Vegas um, you know, we wrote this, wrote this topic out yesterday. You know, if you look on, you know, the interwebs uh, at the moment, there's another name that's already being mentioned in Tyrese uh, Halberton, who's from the Kings, as he's being named as another top runner for the NBA Rookie of the Year award. I think since we're already into the um, mindset of talking about other players, um, you know, two of which are being... Uh, set by Vegas to have better odds of winning the award, I would say Ball's chances are probably quickly slipping from his grasp. Um, and, you know, the problem with these awards and voting is people have short-term memory. And I think at the end of the year, you know, looking back at what they remember as the most recent play, they're probably going to vote for somebody who's been lighting up the scoreboard or really been playing impressive uh, at, at the latter latter half of the season, so I would say he probably has a less than fifty percent chance to win it at this point. What do you think? Yeah, normally missing half a season will kind of really just exclude you from all consideration. But I think we really need to talk about the stats and accolades from the first half of this rookie season. You know, Lamelo is he scored six hundred fifty two points, which is second amongst rookies by the time he went out. Um, he was first amongst rookies in rebounds with 240 assists, 251 steals, 65. You know, this is just the third. Uh, it is just third start. He he set a career high 34 points against against a very good Utah Jazz. Um, you know, only one other rookie in NBA history has averaged 15, five, and five with two three pointers a game, and that's Luka Doncic. You know, uh, per the 36-minute kind of metric, Lamelo is averaging 19 points, seven assists, seven rebounds, 
there's only been one other rookie in NBA history to put up those numbers, and that was Oscar Robinson in 1960. He's he's doing things that other guys haven't done before. Yeah, he's also the first player or the youngest player in NBA history to notch a triple double uh, when he put up 22, 12, and 11 against Atlanta. You know, ultimately, you know, the Timberwolves and Edwards have kind of lacked the success, which could be Lamelo's saving grace for rookie of the year. Um, with Lamelo, the Charlotte Hornets were, you know, considered to be in that postseason mix. Um, you know, they're currently sitting at the fifth seed in the East, and you know, a lot of that success has to be attributed to Ball and the way that he's played. So I, I'm going to say there's still a chance that he makes it, even though I think it's pretty slim. Right, well, that brings us into the next NBA topic. Uh, we just passed, as I mentioned, the All-Star break, which meant uh, soon thereafter was some, uh, was the trade deadline. So we saw a lot of um, movement, which is not what was expected. Uh, most of the analysts predicted a very quiet NBA uh, trade deadline. Most of the analysts came out saying um, that they would expect it to pass it by without much action, but instead we saw... The shuffling of 46 players, the highest number uh, ever in a one-day span in the NBA. Of the 30 NBA teams, 23 took part in the action, which delivered 16 individual trades. We didn't see any superstars dealt at the deadline, but we did see a couple of all-stars get traded. Uh, our hometown Orlando Magic moved two-time all-star Nik- uh, Nikolai Vucevic to Chicago, and Victor Aladipo wound up in Miami um, as a rental. The Western Conference wasn't as busy, but it saw teams like Denver and Dallas unquestionably improve. Teams have acquired the final pieces of their roster in preparation for the playoff push. Logan, of these teams that made moves at the at the deadline, which team do you think improved the most as a result of this trade deadline shuffle? So on the trade deadline, you and I were texting quite a bit during you know the hours leading up to the trade deadline, and mostly that was kind of circled around the the Magic's transaction. But because of that, I I did stay kind of plugged into the trade rumors and transactions. So this year, I followed the the trade deadline for the NBA certainly more than I ever have before. And once again, the smoothest man in basketball, Pat Riley, managed to add some solid pieces to that Miami Heat team. And he did it at almost no cost to the team and set them up for another good run in the playoffs this year. You know, Miami was in the talks for uh, for Lowry, but that didn't really materialize. So the the Heat front office kind of changed their their trajectory and, and went over and got a dynamic scorer in former all-star uh, Victor Oladipo to pair along guys with like Butler and Bam. Uh, you know, the, and the Heat got Oladipo, you know, for in exchange for Avery and... Um, Kelly Olnick uh, and a draft swap, you know, so that, that's pretty low. I know he's a free agent or a restricted free agent this year, so they have first rights to sign him. They probably can, but uh, you know, Olnick was a valuable player down the stretch going forward. But they, you know, they had already replaced him with uh, uh, who they get uh, Belaza, uh, mm-hmm. you know, who's. You know, he's a, a better stretch four player, you know, that, that power forward position. So, you know, they already got him, who's who's an uh, upgrade at that position, when they traded him Harkless, you know. And Harkless, you know, he was a good defensive ring wing, but, you know, 
they already replaced him earlier this week when they picked up uh, Leonard and, and Trevor Ariza. So they saw upgrades across the board and did it for very little. You know, they they didn't give up any substantial pieces. They didn't get up here. They didn't give up uh, Duncan Robinson, you know. So they were able to add pieces without losing anything. And I think that's pretty rare in the trade deadline where, uh, you know, we talked about last week where that's a position where you usually kind of overextend to get players. So if, if Oladipo can bounce back and kind of be that star player, um, you know, this sets up that Heat team for a, a good window over the next couple of years where they could be real contenders in the East. So, uh, you know, I think the movement this year was probably a result of the play-in tournament. Uh, maybe that has incentivized some teams, uh, at least a couple more teams, to, to kind of be active in that trade deadline. So... Um, otherwise, I'm not really sure why this year saw such a big, big shift. What do you think? Yeah, I don't know. You know what was the cause of you know so many moves? You know we were, as you mentioned, pretty involved just because the week leading up to the deadline, it was pretty clear that at least Aaron Gordon from the Magic, um, you know, was very vocal about wanting to be traded. I don't think either one of us would have predicted that the Magic offloaded as many players as they did. Um, certainly there I only saw Gordon and Fournier going just because of Fournier's contract was over. Right. And you know, exactly. There was, there was legitimate reasons for both Gordon and Fournier to be, to be moved, but you know, to get to 46 players, we're talking about a lot of movement, big, you know, the big names you've already kind of splurred them out. JJ Reddick's another big name, of course, a name that we know in, um, Orlando as well. Uh, and I'm actually going to say that, that's my favorite move um, is JJ to Dallas just because, um, you know, I think a lot of teams, and we're going to talk about this in the, in the next topic, a lot of teams added to an already pretty bolstered roster. Um, you know, certainly, you know, Denver adding Aaron Gordon makes them a more solid team. You know, Aladipo to Miami gives them a little bit more of a defensive prowess. As you uh, mentioned, you know, Blake Griffin kind of, that wasn't on the deadline, but that happened a few days prior to the deadline. Makes Brooklyn just another crazy, you know, super ex superstar player for that starting lineup or off the bench. But I like JJ to Dallas, and I think you know Dallas is one of those teams that they're very you know offensive focused. You know, Luka Doncic, as we know, is a triple double machine. Probably one of the I think people would argue the best point guard in the league, but definitely the the best up and coming point guard in the league. Um, he already has the accolades within the first two years. But I, I like them adding the sharpshooter. The West is pretty stacked. Um, we talk about you know the f- couple teams in the East: Philly, Milwaukee, Brooklyn. But that's kind of and and Miami, I suppose. You know that's kind of the extent of you know the, the East. You know you look at the West. Any of those teams from one to eight, I mean, legitimately, in my opinion, could win the West, especially depending on what's going on in L.A. with LeBron and uh, Anthony Davis moving forward. So I, I, you, know, you bring a veteran in, you have Luka Doncic, you have Christoph Porzingis, who are both still very young players mm-hmm. in this league. I think you add a good veteran pre- uh, presence to that team, I think, a presence that they need to maybe mature their play style and make them a little bit more competitive in the West. Um, and not to mention he's 
what, 46% from the three-point line. So you're not adding just a, you know, a veteran. You're adding one of the top three-point shooting players in the NBA percentage-wise. So um, I like that move. You know, part of it's probably just because I really like J.J. Redick, and I (laughs) I wish he would have never left Orlando. But uh, I think he does add another pretty vital weapon to an already very potent Dallas offense. Yeah, and he's a guy that can come off the bench and give you immediate production consistently. Right, and I think it'd be it would be interesting to mention that um, this could be a double-edged sword because J.J. Redick was not happy to be dealt the way he was, apparently. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you saw the story, but he asked to be dealt in November of 2020 um, for a couple of reasons. One being he, came to, he went to New Orleans to play with Drew Holiday, um, and it, New Orleans pretty much dealt him as fast as JJ walked in. Um, and then JJ has a, a son who is starting kindergarten. And he's, if uh, anyone knows his backstory, he's a resident of Brooklyn. Um, so I have a feeling maybe the Nets were on his list, but mm-hmm. um, he wanted to be closer to home. And he was under the impression that the GM of uh, New Orleans was going to help him. Uh, get somewhere where he wanted to be even to the point where they had conversations about him going to a team that was going to help his situation. And then they trade him about five hours West to Dallas. So um, he's not a happy camper, but uh, I'm sure he's, he's definitely a professional. So he's not going to let that of course uh, affect his play. I just thought that was interesting. That is, I I did see that story uh, just earlier today. So so like we, I mentioned, I, oh, why don't ahead. you go ahead? Why don't you introduce it? No, go ahead. I was going to say that that leads us to kind of a topic that I mentioned, which is we touched on some of the teams um, who improved the most through the deadline. We both picked at least one. So, you know, switching gears, there were some teams that just made themselves even better. So with the trade deadline behind us, uh, we have a much clearer look at what teams we'll be working with come playoff time. We saw some of the top teams in the NBA continue to improve their roster, such as Denver, as mentioned. The 76ers getting George Hill, Clippers trading for Rajon Rondo, and the Jazz sharp, uh, get sharpshooter Matt Thomas. Uh, Logan, post-trade deadline, if you had to pick a team, who would you say is the best team in the NBA? I've been on the Brooklyn bandwagon ever since they acquired Harden earlier this season. And I'm still on that ride. So the Nets... They didn't make any trades per se at the deadline, um, but there also weren't any teams that made made a move that would change my mind that the Brooklyn Nets aren't the championship favorite. Um, Brooklyn went and out, got uh, Lamarck Aldridge, uh, part of the buyout market, uh, really added depth to an already you know growing depth of that team with a with Blake Griffin earlier. You know Aldridge, he's one of the three. Out of the four guys who have shot better than 52% when, with, and have taken at least 100 mid-range jumpers. So he's seen a huge impact on his three-point game uh, for the second straight season. And, you know, I don't know that he, that he makes them a more powerful offense. You know, they're already the number one ranked offense in the league. But he certainly just kind of adds to that depth. So, yeah, Blake Griffin, you know, you got Aldridge now. Just continuing to get deeper for that good playoff run. Yeah, deep teams are really hard to beat. 
and, and let's not forget, you have the self-proclaimed MVP, James Harden. Uh, to think that he's the MVP means you kind of forgot what happened earlier this season with the Rockets. Uh, but in terms of his stint with the Nets, he's averaging 26-9-11 in 31 games. He's shooting at an incredibly high efficiency. Uh, the team's got a 24-7 and record with him. And, you know, many of these games have been without Kevin Durant, who's got that hamstring injury, and with Kyrie Irving, who's still dealing with, you know, whatever his um, family issues are, his, his personal issues. Uh, so Durant's really been that guy. And when you get the rest of that team together and they're in the playoffs and they're full-powered, that's going to be hard. So uh, real quick before I throw it over to you, I, I want to talk about Harden real quick. I was not a fan of Harden, uh, but since – this season, I've really kept an eye on him. I got to go to the Magic uh, Brooklyn game where the Magic beat them. And I really watched Harden, uh, particularly in the warm-ups, um, during the anthem. He's a very, very humble player. He was talking to everybody. He was talking to fans. Uh, he was talking to referees. He was talking to other players. Um, joking around with his team during the anthem, he's one of the few guys that I saw that was like steadfast, like hand on the heart, looking up at the flag, you know, moved by the anthem. Um, he's had some really good sportsmanship, uh, you know. Just earlier today, you know, the the Brooklyn's playing the Rockets. He went over and, and showed kind of the the coaching staff on the Rockets some love for the game. Uh, this is a guy who I, I'm actually uh, starting to get a little little man crush on. But uh, I'll throw it back to you. Get back on topic here. Yeah, I mean, on paper, it's definitely Brooklyn. I mean, from top to bottom, they just added so many pieces to that team. Um, as you mentioned, for depth, I mean, the starting lineup's crazy. Um, you know, one to five, just talent everywhere. They've clearly propelled themselves to the, the top of the East, and I don't see them going anywhere. Um, I think we're gonna. It's gonna come down to. Um, you know, we, we, we root for Brooklyn in L.A., we said in the last podcast, just because that's the fantasy matchup, right? If you wanted to see two teams square off for seven games, LeBron versus, you know, the star-studded uh, t- uh, Brooklyn team, Ky- his old teammate, t- teammate Kyrie, and then the, arguably t- two of the other top five players in the NBA. Um, you know, but we could very well get a less uh, favorable, not favorable, but a less desired matchup with Brooklyn and Utah. Um, And we kind of talked about this right before the start of the podcast. You know, if somebody told you this far into the season that Utah would be number one in the West and would have the best winning percentage by a pretty decent margin um, in the entire NBA, um, I don't think any of us would have taken that pick or believed that that's what the outcome would be. Um, and on paper, I mean, you look at their their lineup, this is not a star-studded roster. Um, you know, they, they definitely have their names, and um, I think they've just built a very good core. I mean, Donovan Mitchell has, you know, is coming into his own as a, as a star in this league. You have veteran players, Mike Conley at the, at the point guard. Um but, you know, really outside of them, if somebody didn't watch NBA um, a whole lot, you wouldn't recognize almost, you know, anybody else on their lineup. So we're going to have a very typical 
and you know, no matter no matter what, if it's Brooklyn and Utah or Brooklyn versus LA, I think Brooklyn's going to be the favorite. But I mean, Utah versus Brooklyn's going to be this, you know, David versus Goliath story. It's going to be yeah. this, you know, team that's put together um, through free agency versus the team that is developed through draft picks and young players um, to really be a cohesive unit. And you know, I think in that case, if that's where we see in the in in the finals, you know, I'm. I, I think I'd probably root for Utah just because um, I'm not a huge fan of these super teams. But, um, you know, it's definitely Brooklyn on paper. Brooklyn by, you know, the last half of the season since they've gotten Harden, they've been running away with the East. So um, I'd be very surprised if anybody didn't pick them as the best team in the NBA right now. Um, the only thing about Harden, I just want to touch on it because you talked about it. I'm, I've always liked him. You know, I he gets a lot of hate for what happened, um, you know, with his departure in Houston. But, you know, he had a rough go in Oklahoma City before he even went to Houston. Mm-hmm. He was the third, you know, third fiddle uh, behind Russell Westbrook and um, Durant. And, you know, he's definitely getting his due. He's always been... You know, I agree with you, a humble player, never really having any issues with media or problems off the court other than, you know, his family problems, which, I mean, we all have family problems, right? So um, I just wish he would play defense. (laughs) It's the only thing is he is the worst defensive player in the NBA. (laughs) Well, when you score that many, you don't got to play. I know, but I mean, you ain't winning every game. So he, you know. Just, it, I just, it's just funny. You should go look at him. I'm not faulting him. He, that's his game, and he does his game well. Um, but there are so many clips of him just like sidestepping a driving mm-hmm. player and letting him lay it up. But hey, I mean, if he hosts the trophy this year, I mean, I guess it doesn't really matter then. Yeah, you know, I wouldn't mind seeing the David Goliath, you know, Utah versus uh, Brooklyn in the playoffs. As a final, that'd be no, no. that'd be good. I mean, it'd be good for the league, a good storyline, you know, at least. Uh, to, you know, like you said, draft uh, development versus free agent acquisition or trades. So, well, moving on to football, Washington football team majority owner Dan Snyder has been involved in a, a feud with his three minority partners for much of the last year. The battle between Snyder and his partners uh, has spilled over to the public. As part of lawsuits, uh, accusations, mudslinging, uh, but may, this may be coming to an end. You know, the three majority or minority partners have been trying to sell their forty point five percent stake in the in the team, and now Snyder is reporting the process of buying out his partners. The league uh, league finance committee approved Snyder's application for a two or sorry four hundred and fifty million dollar debt waiver, so that he may go above the debt limit and purchase uh, the team outright. Um, every team has a, a set debt limit. Um, the league owners unanimously uh, approved the special waiver today during their annual meeting. Um, Snyder will pay seven or $875 million for the remaining 40.5% stake, allowing him to take over complete control of the franchise, which he first bought the majority stake in in 1999. Uh, Snyder's efforts to obtain complete control of the team come on the heels of a uh, the NFL wrapping up an investigation into sexual harassment claims made against Snyder and some of the former Washington football team executives. 
is Snyder becoming the sole owner of the Washington football team really a good thing for the league, Brian? I mean, it's kind of it's kind of a, a weird question because I don't think it really changes much of anything. I mean, he was already the majority owner. He has gotten so much heat since he bought the team, um, increasingly year after year. And I don't think it's all you know. Everything that's happened with that team is not his fault. And I think he does get. I'm not saying he's an angel. He definitely has his problems. I mean, he has these sexual harassment claims that are being made against him, which certainly doesn't help his cause. He's definitely taking a very he's taken a very um, conservative approach to the you know the team name until he finally fo- folded you know last year and changed the name of the team. Um, I honestly think what's going to happen is he's going to hold on to the team for a few more years until it, it's sold in its entirety to, to a new owner. Um, and I I don't know if that's going to happen just because he gets pushed out by the rest of the league. And I know that's a weird thing to think of when you when you hear the you know, the rest of the league is, um, you know, voting to uh, let him go past the debt waiver or the debt ceiling so that he can buy the rest of the team. Um, but Washington has been the focal point of a lot of adversity um, over the last decade. Dan Snyder at the forefront. Um, I know he loves owning the team, but, you know, there's only so many problems that you can you can kind of take on in, in this kind of role. We've seen it across you know, the other major sports, especially in the NBA over the past decade with owners who you would never think selling off a team, you know, just saying, listen, I'm done. I'll take my money and run. Um, so I think, you know, it's it's a two-prong, you know, question. And the first one is, do you think he's going to keep the team long-term? It's certainly easier for him to sell off the team in its entirety if he's the sole owner versus, you know, piecing it out um, amongst the minority shareholders. Um, and then B, I mean... Really, I think at the end of the day, um, other than the, the issues we've already talked about with Washington, it really doesn't do. It doesn't really have an impact on the league per se. If anything, it has a um, impact on the NFL's persona in in general. Being he's a very polarizing figure, and I think the NFL and you know Snyder in particular will get a lot of hate based on just the positions he's taken for the team, his personal life. Um, I think that's what's going to have the biggest impact as opposed to any widespread impact on the league itself. Hmm. Interesting. Cause I, you know, from my understanding is that he wants to pass the team down to his kids. Um, uh, I forget the gentleman who owned the team, uh, you know, bought the expansion and ended up selling it. Um, but he sold it off because he didn't have any kids and he didn't want it to go as part of his estate. He wanted to, to sell it off ahead of time. But I, I think Dan Slender intends to at least pass it down his family. Uh, so his kids will, will take, which it. I think was awesome. I, I mean, I hope it goes that way. It's just, I, I mean, I think that's, you know, that's his family's tied to him. You know, his, he's polarizing. He gets going to get pressure from, you know, if something else happens with him, you know, on a oh, personal well. level, there's going to be people that are, hey, Dan, you know, you may want to get out. Yeah. And, you know, at that point, passing it down might be the ideal situation. But things change fast. I mean, I would, when, if I was his kid, I'd be like, yeah, hang on to it. But you never know mm-hmm. when those kind of things come up. So, so I'm going to take the stance that this is a good thing for, I'm going to say the league in quotation marks, uh, but more importantly, it's it's important for the owners. 
the league doesn't want to see you know infighting amongst owners and mudslinging. Uh, so from a public image perspective, having a sole owner take over the team takes kind of that negative press and stigma away. Uh, but the big takeaway is you know is this that the fact that the league has approved this debt waiver that gives the perception that whatever happens going forward with this investigation and misconduct, you know, it won't end with Snyder being forced to sell the team. Uh, you know, just a week ago, there was a leak of a draft report from the, the litigator um, and, and investigator who uh, had a recommendation to Commissioner Goodell that Snyder be pressured, forced, or required to sell the team. Um, that's likely not going to happen since the league has kind of empowered him now to borrow excess money necessary so he can buy out the minority owners. Uh, the league and the owners are, are kind of getting behind Snyder, who is not one of the most liked guys in that circle. Um, but this is kind of like a, a circle the wagons kind of thing while this investigation is still pending, you know. Uh, and it, it was a surprise. I, I think that there's a concern, you know, from a, a, throwing spo- a throwing stones from a glass house, meaning that they are trying to establish a standard that could be applied to other owners should there be owners who find themselves in a similar situation, you know, maybe not a sexual allegations situation, but a, but a public, you know, image perspective. Um, you know, we're talking about a subset of people who are used to being catered to, who have, you know, vast amounts, almost limit, limitless amounts of money, who uh, wield a, you know, a lot of power. And, you know, I don't have any insider information or anything, but, you know, some of these guys got to not want Pandora's box open. You know, they don't want to... Uh, create a precedent where an owner is forced to sell based on you know things that may have happened in the past you know with today's cancel culture i'm sure some of these guys are are thinking back 10 15 years and asking themselves you know is there anybody who in my past could step forward uh you know with some damning allegations whether they're real or false or exaggerated you know it doesn't quite matter because at some point if you're a bad face for the league you're gonna be kind of pushed out uh you know so you know, I, I think Snyder having control of the team from a, a fans and a football perspective is probably not a good thing. He's he's, in my opinion, not a very good owner. He'll, you know, he he sued a fan, uh, a seventy year old lady, for uh, like sixty six thousand dollars for canceling her season tickets, and he won. You know, because she didn't have legal counsel, and you know, he's censored fans in the past. He's made bad personal choices in terms of front office. He's made bad football choices. I mean, I'd, I'd rather see somebody else in that position owning the team. But uh, from a league perspective, it'll stop a lot of the negative aspects going forward, at least the ones that exist now. Well, you know, to make it even more interesting, he will be the owner of a team that plays one more game every season, right? So the NFL, in addition to, you know, the the news with Dan Snyder has um, added an additional game to the regular season. Um, The league uh, secured an agreement from the NFL Players Association to expand the schedule to 17 regular season games. Uh, League owners just approved the expansion during the annual owners meeting, which has taken place over the past two days. Uh, But let's be real, the owners knew they were expanding the regular season all along, didn't we? (laughs) Just earlier this month, the league negotiated new TV deals based on the assumption that there would be 17 games. ESPN even negotiated and obtained a Saturday doubleheader in week, wait for it, 
18. The Week 18 game is reported to be an interconference contest based uh, on where a team finished in its division the prior year. Are you in favor of the 17th regular season game? Yeah, I think anyone who's kind of paid attention, especially like post-Super Bowl, kind of knew that this was you know, coming. It wasn't just expected, that it was kind of like a for-sure for thing that was going to happen. Uh, you know, as a fan of football, I like this a lot. More football is, is fantastic. Uh, I'm all for that. I'm currently, you know, in the, the football life cycle of, uh, or yearly cycle of, I want football back now. We still have over like 150 days before the regular season kicks off, too. So, um, you know, I'm kind of jonesing for more football. So adding one more game from a, a viewer fan perspective, I'm a big fan of. Um, I will say that if I don't want it to come back, like, come back and be expanded and have it be watered down you know we saw a lot of injuries last season and injuries to some very prominent star players um so when those stars kind of went out for either, either long stretches or you know in most cases were done for the season i really just kind of tuned those teams out and didn't really care about them you know mccaffrey with carolina barkley and the giants dak and dallas you know, I understand there's a, a player safety concern, but they're also going to kind of mitigate some of that by decreasing the preseasons down from games from four to three. Um, so, yes, there's an argument there for, for player safety and injury, but um, I still like it. Uh, one of the other arguments is that it kind of screws with the schedule. You know, someone's got an extra home game, so things can get a little wonky, uh, but. They're going to switch back and forth every year, so that kind of takes care of that. My big concern with expanding from 17 games is from the stats perspective. You know I love stats. The NFL culture has been so ingrained with stats, both on a personal and team level. Uh, there seems to be kind of a metric for everything nowadays, which is which is fantastic because it, it kind of fuels this podcast and gives us a lot to talk about. Uh, but with the expansion to 17 games... And, you know, probably eventually 18 games, because 17 just count, sounds kind of weird. Um, we're we're going to see records be broken left and right. Uh, the record books from the last 43 seasons aren't going to matter. They're going to be largely meaningless. I mean, we're going to see, you know, say Trevor Lawrence play 17 games or more for his entire career. You know, so when he goes against stat-wise against guys like Peyton, Montana, Brady, Breeze, who all played 16 games, they're going to get blown out eventually. It's just it's a kind of an inevitable fact. If he's able to play long enough, or anybody is able to play long enough, at 17 games, they're going to break more records. And you know, are we going to see an Asher going forward for like the past records? Are we going to refer to uh, you know kind of different areas of pre and post expansion? You know, I I don't like that. I, I like the 16 games. There's a good thing going there in terms of stats. So yeah, I already put an asterisk on the Dolphins' undefeated season. So whoa, 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 whoa. Why? Why well, we put? Play, why we put an asterisk? They didn't there. play. They didn't. They only played thirteen regular season games. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, I, I agree with you. I, as a fan of football, I love it. Um, but you know, I think my my thing with it is, you know, yeah, we get an extra week of football. That's awesome. I love football. You know, I wish there would be football. You know, fifty two weeks a year, but. Um, it's clearly only being done for revenue, right? I mean, what, what? other reason? Oh, for sure. Well, I mean, why? Damn it, Brian! It's for the love of the game. No, for no. It's definitely because I mean, if you look at the way this the season is already with the sixteen game season as we've had it for the last 
like you said, 43 years. I mean, mm-hmm. what is the need of an additional game? You know, and I think it's for two reasons. A, of course, revenue for the teams, um, which of course the players have an issue with because now they're going to want to be paid more, right? Of course, mm-hmm. um, which I mean, play an extra game. If I go to work an extra day, I expect to get paid an extra day. No, your um, salary's done. You don't get extra money. No, your salary, no. come on. Man, damn, fuck me. Okay. Um, so, <laughs> so revenue for the teams. And then I think that the league is probably on the cusp of adding some more teams. Um, mm. It's been 20 years since we last saw an expansion team with the Texans being added in 2002. So just under 20 years. Um, But I think adding an additional game at this point is just setting up the league for the ability to expand. And, you know, that's one of the major reasons why we have expanded the number of games in the past, because, the more teams you have, obviously, the more games that need to be played um, throughout the season. Um, and, it, you know, there's certain numbers of weeks, obviously, in football that make certain league numbers conduce- more conducive to the amount of teams that are in the league. I would not be surprised. The NFL certainly not hurting for money, even though they've had their trials and tribulations um, ever since the whole kneeling fiasco began. Be, but I think we're probably very close to expansion. And I would say it's probably going to be two teams just because they're not going to want to do an odd number, which leads to another host of different conversations we can have about, you know, where, what divisions would they be in? How are they going to, are they going to reorganize the divisions again? Um, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if in the next two or three years we have an announcement that some, you know, big city will be entering the league as an expansion team. Hmm. Does it make sense to go to 18 games then if you're going to add another team? I mean, obviously we're not privy to the, you know, conversations of the league, you know, the owners and the league meetings, but I would think that the more teams you add, you know, it's been 43 years. I mean, we go back 43 years ago. I couldn't tell you off the top of my head how many teams were in the league, but it was less than 30 for sure. It was somewhere in the mid twenties, if not the low twenties. So, I mean, my assumption would be when you're getting up into the, you know, we're at 32 teams now, if you go to 34 teams, my guess would be that adding an additional game at the end of the season does help with scheduling that many games. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but that's still, in my opinion, a secondary reason. It's definitely revenue, right? So like 10, it's been 43 years at 16 games. I mean, it's not like we needed the extra game to make sure that the right teams are making the playoffs, right. you know? So, and it's not like we've seen a lump of teams all ending eight and eight. You know, it's like if we had 24 teams going eight and eight, it's like, oh, well, maybe we need another game because we have 16 teams going eight and eight. Right. And they're all tied. It's not been the case, you know, freaking Washington made it at seven and nine last year. So, I mean, it's not like we're, we have a talent gap and there's half the league ending at the same record. That would be the only other way I could see why maybe you need an extra game. Yeah. So, this gives me flashbacks to uh, early fantasy football days. We, uh, you know, we expanded from, you know, uh, eight teams to 10 teams, we've done 12 teams. 
and uh, it was always a headache just doing the schedule because inevitably you always had somebody that complained, oh, my, I had the harder schedule. I had to play the best team multiple times. That's why I didn't make it in. But So we, we eventually, you know, we're, we're just a casual league. We're at eight teams now, which is fantastic because, you know, you play everybody twice. But now that they're going to add another game, it just gives me uh, – gives me some stress thinking about what to do next year for the for the league but uh that's not really a big deal so uh let's move on we're gonna we're gonna add a new segment this week uh we're gonna call it on the clock uh, this is a five-part weekly segment uh each week we'll dissect two picks leading up to this year's nfl draft the uh 2021 draft is scheduled to take place in cleveland with the first two rounds on april 29th or sorry, the first round on april 29th Rounds two and three on April 30th, and finishing up with rounds four through seven on May 1st. Uh, first, let's get caught up on kind of the draft pro- developments that have happened over the last week or so. Um, the draft will start with the Jacksonville Jaguars at number one and conclude with the defending Super Bowl champions, Tom, uh, Tom Brady, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Yep, yep. Picking <laughs> Tom Mr. Brady. <laughs> the Tom Brady Buccaneers picking uh, Mr. Irrelevant at number 259. There are two teams forfeiting draft picks this year. New England for the uh, is uh, forfeiting a third-round pick for their filming of the Cincinnati Bengals in 2019, and Minnesota is forfeiting a seventh-round pick because of the salary cap violation. Um the Eagles have the most picks with 11. The Seattle Seahawks have the fewest with three. We've seen some shuffling in the order over the last week. We saw trades between the Miami Dolphins, Philadelphia Eagles, and San Francisco 49ers, with Miami being the common factor in all of those. So without further ado, the 2021 draft order is as follows. Number one, Jacksonville Jaguars. Number two, New York Jets. Number three, San Francisco 49ers, which they acquired from Miami via trade with Houston. Uh, number four, the Atlanta Falcons. Number five, the Bengals. Number six, Miami Dolphins, which they got from Philly uh, just last week. Number seven, uh, Detroit Lions. Number eight, Carolina Panthers. Nine, Denver Broncos. And wrapping up number 10, the Dallas Cowboys. Brian, with the Jags and Jets on the clock this week, who are they drafting? Quarterbacks, quarterbacks, quarterbacks. I mean, we know who's going number one. Like, there's no need to even really go into conversation about Jacksonville. They will be taking Trevor Lawrence. He is by far the number one overall draft pick in the draft. Everybody's saying he's the best quarterback to come out in years. The full package, ready for the NFL. All I will say is that big-name quarterbacks from big schools over the past decade have not turned out to be the best quarterbacks in this league. We will see what happens with Trevor Lawrence. He certainly has the intangibles, but outside Andrew Luck... Where's he these days? They've all been busts. So, two is still, you know, iffy. But um, Jacksonville, number one, Trevor Lawrence. Number two, New York Jets. Again, don't know if Darnold is completely done. There's been a lot of people that come out and have said that they don't think that Darnold has gotten a fair shake in New York because they don't have anybody else on that team. But I do think New York takes a quarterback um, at number two, and it's going to be between either Zach Wilson of BYU, who has just as many intangibles, especially on the run, spect- you know, spectacular throws. You know, the question is his um, level of competition at BYU. You know how that translates to the NFL. 
I think it's him or they take Justin Fields um, from Ohio State. He just had his pro day, turned some heads with uh, his his arm strength and uh, ability to throw 65-plus yards while fading to his left, which is his non-dominant hand. Um, certainly has mobility. Um, so I think for New York, they're taking Wilson or Fields uh, to lead that team into another 4-12, and or I'm sorry, Four and thirteen? No, yeah, four and thirteen season. <laughs> you got to be decisive. Who are they taking? Uh, I think Justin Fields put his notched his way up one pick, so I think it's going to be Fields. Mm. Brian, you missed the artistry of how these teams got to where they are. Jacksonville and New York had a fierce battle last season for who could suck the most. Both of them oh, I was trying to be quick. Both of these teams gave their all, man. But week 16, the Jets just screwed the pooch. They beat the Browns, winning back-to-back games. While the Jags stayed the course, they took their 17th consecutive loss to the Bears, uh, losing to the Bears, and walked away with the number one pick. And like you said, I think that uh, these this at least the first pick, we are going to be um, the same on here. Everyone, I think, is going to be the same on this pick. With the number one pick, the Jacksonville Jaguars will select Trevor Lawrence, quarterback of Clemson. You know, this doesn't come as a shock to anybody. The Jags have been trying to fix that team uh, one quarterback, quarterback band-aid at a time for the last, jeez, how long? You know, it looks like they may have found their guy a couple years ago with Blake Bortles from uh, my alma mater. Uh, but... They, they're just one struggling quarterback after another. Um, it's clear they need a quarterback. Trevor Lawrence is going to be that guy. He's Like you said, he's got all the t- intangibles. I mean, Urban Meyer came out last week and pretty much confirmed it, you know, um, without saying it directly. But, you know, this pick has been the unanimous pick at number one for so long that I really haven't heard anything about Trevor Lawrence, the Jaguars, leading up to the draft. Um uh, like you said, he checks all the boxes. You know, great athlete has the the arm strength, the height, the mobility. You know, and Jacksonville's got three additional picks in the top fifty, so they're going to certainly need to get some weapons for Lawrence. They're going to need to get some protection. So, probably a speed receiver, a dual purpose quarterback, and and some protection is probably you know those three left picks. tackle, left guard, yeah. center. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They they did a lot in in the trade deadline right. or free agency this year. They made a lot of moves, not not as essay impactful as say like the the Patriots uh, and the moves they get. But they 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 got a lot of people and put people in better positions than they were had over the last year. But uh, you know the speculation around the Jets they're looking to you know replace a, a Sam Darnold and, and draft a franchise quarterback going forward. Uh, but it's the Jets. You never know what they're going to do draft day. Um, I thought that free agency might provide a little bit of insight as to their plans. Uh, they did go out and get some much-needed receivers in Corey Davis and Keelan Cole, uh, but they needed these weapons regardless of who's going to be under center. Um, you know, the fact that they didn't move Darnold kind of makes me believe, like you said, that maybe he's not gone right away. Maybe they keep him um, as a bridge quarterback. Um, you know, maybe they. Maybe they use him in the draft to to move up or down somewhere later on, but uh, you know, I I I think that it's going to be uh, BYU's quarterback Zach Wilson to the Jets. Um, he's become an increasingly popular pairing with with the Jets. Um, 
kind of due to the offensive coordinator, Mike LaFleur's Shanahan-style offense. You know, the at the core, the Shanahan offense kind of centers around deception by incorporating a, a lot of motion at and before the snap, uh, a lot of outside zone runs, play-action passes. Uh, and no one in the country last year posted higher grades in play-action passes than Wilson. Uh, it, wasn't even, it wasn't even close. So... I think this pick marks the end of Sam Darnold's era in New York. You know, we'll see if they trade him before or after the deadline um, during the during the draft, uh, or if they keep him to you know, like I said, make that that bridge at least for the first part of the season. So, no, definitely we'll we'll see on draft day. But uh, quarterbacks are the name of the game, so I would not be surprised if uh, you know all four of the top four picks. Um, take quarterbacks. We'll get into three and four next week. But uh, that brings us... Well, you know, things change. You know, Kyle Pitts is on the board too. You don't know where he's going. So, Um, But that brings us to this week's Who You Got. So um, we're hitting you with a Shaq attack this week as uh, wrestling fans were treated to one of the greatest showmen in the sports entertainment world on Wednesday night. NBA legend Shaquille O'Neal took the ring where he teamed up with Jade Cargill to take down Cody Rhodes and Red Velvet. Shaq looks spry for a 49-year-old retired big man and even end up being slammed through two tables. We have seen other traditional athletes such as William the Refrigerator Perry, Lance Taylor, Reggie White, Carl Malone, and several others step into the ring. Who do you got as the best traditional athlete turned wrestler? When I think wrestling, I think over-the-top showmanship. I think swagger, and I'm going to think Dennis Rodman. Dennis Rodman is a flamboyant, attention-demanding character with an extravagant attire and a rock star party personality. Uh, you know, he's got some great wrestling nicknames already. The Worm, Rodzilla, Dennis the Menace. I know for, he's participated in wrestling kind of in the past, and they've kind of been lackluster. But that was because he was in the middle of those Bulls dynasty runs. I think that, you know, without the risk of being hurt, he could have been like the kind of crossover guy after retirement you know he could have been that that truly something special in the entertainment world yeah i mean uh rodman certainly uh on the list there of uh you know people i would love to see in the you know wwe on a more time base more full-time basis but i think you know looking back at the most historical um, appearances of all time, like you said, swagger, personality. I think when Mike Tyson kind of stuck into the ring back in the late 90s, you know, when he was at the top of his game, you know, he, he could have had that swagger. Now, he, he's a very weird guy in his, own, mm-hmm. in his own right, but he is certainly coming from boxing to wrestling, easy transition. Um, you know, I think maybe if he would have had a different, you know, aspiration following boxing boxing he could have made the easy transition and and been helped along to being a pretty good personality in the wwe but uh rodman tyson any of those guys yeah you know, B- in those big r- personality guys right well that'll take us to this day in sports on march 31st uh 2013 we had one of the biggest upsets in the history of the women's NCAA tournament, 60 Louisville stunned the defending national champs, the Baylor Lady Bears, in the regional semifinals, beating them 82-21. The loss marked the end of a remarkable college career for Baylor's Brittany Griner, who at the end of the season 
was the second highest scoring player in women's NCAA history. This year, Baylor and Louisville made made it to the uh, the Elite Eight, with both teams failing to advance to the Final Four uh, earlier this week. So, with that, we're going to close it out. Thank you guys for tuning in. Be sure to catch up with us on our uh, socials and tune in next week to the uh, the, the Sideline Sportscast. Don't forget, let us know what we should drink. Let us know what you want to hear about. And as a bonus, you know, let us know if you want us to cover any other uh, teams in the draft. That's kind of a, a bonus at the end.